Hey, what's up, guys? I hope you're liking the podcast. Before we get started, I really appreciate if you did three things. Subscribe to the podcast, give a five-star rating, and leave a review. This will help others find it and enjoy it. Today, I'm joined by Donald James, and he used lessons from his mama to land a job with NASA and work all the way up to Associate Administrator for Education level, which is just one step removed from the President of the U.S., He combined the lessons from his mom in the 35 years at NASA to write a book titled Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't. We talk about leadership. We talk about the difference between being polite and honest. He shares how to tell if someone is being authentic, and he speaks to how manners play a role in the power dynamics between police and young black men and women. He even shares his thoughts on aliens and how to interact with them. Without further ado, Donald James. worked for 35 years at NASA and your title, I guess, when you retired and correct me if I'm wrong, was the associate administrator for education. That's so, right. yeah. So what does that entail? Um, so the agency is uh, NASA is an independent agency and it's run by an administrator. And that's one of the few politically appointed positions. The next level down, I guess, in companies, they would be like executive vice presidents are called associate administrators. So we work for the NASA administrator and uh, NASA has several of these. And I was responsible for all of NASA's education efforts. Uh, NASA, since its beginning in 1958, has always wanted to communicate the work that we do to reach out to the public, to be very engaging. And over the years developed um, presence in education because uh, we always felt it was important to inspire the next generation of scientists and explorers and and people like that. Um, And so whether it's having tours of our NASA facilities or having now, of course, with the internet, online uh, presence and any forums to follow missions, um, it was important to do that. So I work very closely with our communications group and engaging the public. Um, my portfolio was uh, major programs across the United States. Uh, we have a presence in every state in the union, uh, in Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. Uh, and we even do things globally. So um, my uh, responsibilities were to uh, lead a group of people who actually did the real work, as you know how that works. and. Um, uh, work with Congress on our budgets and be responsive to uh, the administrator and the deputy administrator uh, for whatever needs that there are. It was the best job, my dream job, uh, and and different in other jobs that I had. I mean, it really was. So I, I just felt very privileged in more ways than yeah, I mean, NASA in so many ways is, is a dream job for, for any, I guess, young kid, high schooler, early, early career, late career, for anyone interested in science, um, interested in technology. And yeah. it, it's, it's like this great opportunity that, that you had to not only work at this phenomenal agency, but to give back in terms of, education to younger folks. And I think that's really powerful, right? Because you're not just, 
you're not just doing the NASA thing. You're, yeah. you're, you're cultivating the next generation of NASA employees. Um, that's right. Yeah, exactly. that's cool. So, and you wrote this book about your 35 years, um, 35 years at NASA and you titled it manners will take you where brains and money won't. And the really cool thing about this book is that, is that you took the lessons, not just from NASA, but the lessons that you learned from your mama. Yeah. And the amazing thing to me is that, uh, you know, you reached this dream job of associate administrator for education and your mom was an educator. Yes. Can you, can you talk about that? Yes. Um, so for me, it wasn't lost on me that, you know, my mom's passion in life was uh, education. And she talked to my brother and me a lot about um, what she did. Um, I learned subtle things about her work. For example, one thing I never forgot is my mother felt it was very important to address her students by their birth and given names and pronounce them the way their parents did when they were born. The reason I mention this is that she worked in an inner city school that saw many immigrants come in. This was after the Vietnam War. There were a lot of immigrants from Southeast Asia uh, moving to the United States, and many of them in Northern California, where we lived. And she noticed that some of her students tried to Americanize their names. And the reason they did that is they wanted the teachers and their peers to feel comfortable in being able to pronounce it. And in some cases, probably didn't want to be teased by what their names were. But my mother uh, wouldn't have any of that. She said, I want to know what your parents called you and how they pronounced your names. She insisted on doing that. And she insisted that uh, my brother and I do the same thing so that when we meet people, uh, we want to make sure that we honor the very basic thing that most of us have, which is a name, our primary label, and to be respectful of that. So that taught me a lot about a respect. And I carried that, you know, into my uh, uh, NASA career, particularly when I dealt with um, international agencies all over the world and you know, working with people from different countries. I also learned that um, sometimes you can't inspire and uh, turn on or transform or educate every single student. Um, you know, my mother felt that, you know, there were some students she realized she could reach and she could address, and there were others that probably weren't. She still did her best with them, but she didn't get hung up on that if she had a class of 33 students, that all 33 were going to become great. She was a French teacher, and so she just knew that some weren't going to be able to do it. What this taught me was that as much as I wanted to work in the community, you know, on behalf of NASA, there are some people that just aren't going to be interested, Ryan. Um, uh, and it's as much as I like to think that everybody loves space and space exploration, the fact of the matter is that's not true. So I became okay with working with people who uh, were willing to listen and engage with me. And uh, but we, the NASA we had usually the opposite problem. We had a lot of groupies, and so we had a lot of people that you know were really into it a lot. So, so it was it was really um, I think no accident that I ended up uh, in education um, a lot because of my mom's background. Yeah, you know I think that's a I think that's a really powerful message, and I think in a leadership capacity, especially, uh, and especially in in a in a multinational um, facing 
position, I think being able to, uh, I guess, pronounce everybody's name is important, but I think it just speaks more to just the respect of culture. And if you're interacting with people from a lot of different cultures at NASA, um, you want to be aware of what's respectful, what's disrespectful. Um, And as a leader, I think people really, uh, they respect it, but they respect you. And I think it shows that you value them. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of leadership lessons in this book. And I think that, you know, obviously you did take them, uh, from your, from your mother as well, but I do want to talk a lot about NASA and I want to talk a lot about, um, that experience too. So you started with NASA in the eighties. Is that correct? That's right. 1982. Uh-huh. Okay. And, uh, I mean the challenger, that was, that was a, a huge thing with NASA back in, I, I believe it was 86. Um, right. was that something you were involved in? Yes. And in fact, the Challenger accident is really what totally changed my life and my career. I recount this story in the book, how um, how I got into NASA, which was kind of a, a, a somewhat of a fluke, but it was an interesting story. But when I first started, I really wasn't sure I wanted to stay with NASA because I had changed my focus of my academic uh, studies. And I talk about that in the book. And I, uh, so I'm at NASA and I was really there to get work experience to leverage that to, to do, you know, what I thought I really wanted to do. And I, I did that. I took the position because my father, with whom I was living at the time, um, and he was a diplomat. And so he said diplomatically, you know, this is an actual job, Donald. You might want to think about taking it. I was living with him and his second wife at the time. And so I think there was a not so subtle hint that it's time to fly the coop, right? So, um, so I was working there. And then in 1986, Challenger happened. And like many people, when there's major events in the country, they knew where they were. I was in Los Angeles. I was on the 405 freeway listening to KNX radio. And then this news flash came on about the shuttle. And I'm, you know, I'm only, what, now four years into NASA, so I'm still pretty junior. And so it was very, very devastating for us. But what happened was, is that I had happened to meet the head of NASA education at the time, a man named Frank Mullins, who we got along well, and I forgot how we met, but he called me after, a few weeks after Challenger and said, that the agency has decided that um, they were going to take the backup astronaut to Crystal McAuliffe. Crystal McAuliffe was the teacher on the Space Shuttle Challenger who perished with the other six astronauts. And all the astronauts have backups in case somebody gets sick or can't take the flight. So the backup astronaut to Krista was a woman named Barbara Morgan out of Boise, Idaho, an educator there, a wonderful person, still friends to this day. And they asked me to go with Barbara around the country to different events to talk to students and teachers because the nation was in shock. It was like almost like therapy session where they wanted to connect with with Barbara. She was also a trained astronaut, you know, but she didn't fly, obviously, at the time. So my job was to go around with Barbara, and usually I would introduce her. I was like the press spokesman. I would introduce her to the crowd. I'd have to be the bad guy and tell her it's time to go on to the next event or something like that. And it was during that time, Ryan, that I saw the tremendous outpouring 
and love for what NASA did and for the loss of a teacher, educators and students who came out of the woodwork just to connect. And it was really one experience that flipped the switch for me. It happened to be at a science uh, teachers association meeting in Los Angeles. And there was a large group like there always is. I introduced Barbara. I said a few words. She started talking after the event, as it always happens, a bunch of people come up to the dais to get her autograph and talk to her. And I stood off to the side, patiently waiting, looking at my watch. You know, it's time to get to the airplane or we had to go. And this little boy comes up to me. He's holding up a notepad and a pencil. He's giving me this cheapest look. And I'm thinking he wants me to make sure that he gets an autograph from Barbara. And I say, I said, oh, go ahead and get in line. I'll make sure you get an autograph from Barbara. And he said, no, I actually want your autograph. And I said, my autograph? Why? I'm not the astronaut. She's the astronaut. And he looked at me with this complete uh, sense of, I don't know how to describe it. He just said, yeah, but you work for NASA. And, man, that's just so cool. <laughs> and I said right then and there, if I work for an agency that has that kind of impact on young people, I'm in. I'm in. And I made a decision right then. I was going to hang my hat at NASA and make my career there, and the rest is history. I went on to eventually become the head of education to continue that. So that's how Challenger impacted me. Um, I'm still very much involved with the Challenger Learning Center, which was started by Dr. June Scobie Rogers, who was the widow of Dick Scobie, the commander. She's a wonderful woman, um, and they're based out of Washington, D.C., and I'm one of their ambassadors, uh, it's programs all over the country. It's really great. Uh, I'm still in touch with Barbara. In fact, I just I just sent her a copy of the book yesterday. Um, and so uh, she lives up there in Idaho with her husband. So I'm, I'm very much a NASA guy, and I feel privileged to really have represented an agency and seen how NASA has had an impact like that. I can tell you stories of people who were in gangs, gangs, who ended up getting involved in our NASA robotics programs, changed their life totally, went on to MIT and other schools and become, you know, uh, you know, contributing members of society. You know, so, you know, these are people that at one point grew up in a world where, you know, killing people was their, was their, you know, thing. And now they're doing well. So, um, I'm not saying that NASA does it for everybody. What I am saying is that we can have that kind of impact, and and it's um, it's it's really wonderful. So that's how I got in, and that's why I stayed in. Yeah. Do you think that um, just the STEM program in general has that has that effect on on young men in particular? Because I do think that. And full disclosure, so I was a teacher when I first came out of college for three years. Uh And, you know, one of the things that I have found is young men and and boys really enjoy science. And it's oftentimes uh, not the focus of early childhood education specifically. You know, there's a a big focus on reading. There's a big focus on writing. You know, math, math is a focus, 
but it's not in the context of of what you're going to do with it later on in life. It's just this, this, you know, class that you go to and it's numbers and it's addition and subtraction. Um, do you think the STEM program is, is this really valuable program for young boys? Um, it can be, although I'm beginning to have revisionist thoughts about STEM programs. See, I think it's interesting that uh, if you don't mind, if I just use your words to make my no, point. No, sure. STEM program. Well, I don't think there is a STEM program. Uh, let's 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 unpack it a little bit, Ryan. STEM is an acronym which stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. In each of those larger disciplines, there are many subdisciplines. Science has everything from neuroscience to astrophysics to chemistry, biology. The psychobiology, I mean, there's lots. Technology is the word technology, which, you know, the Latin roots means a way of doing things can refer to a lot of things, right? You know, we, you and I are using technology right now to communicate, which wasn't available when I started my NASA career. Engineering has lots of disciplines. Math has lots of disciplines. Now, I admit I was part of the effort to really stemify the narrative in this country for the reasons that we needed more students, uh, particularly uh, boys and girls, to get into the field. But there's not really a program. It's an effort. It's a thought. And I'm actually uh, starting a campaign to to unstem our narrative a little bit because I think people have kind of gotten a little lost. I've actually had parents come up to me and say, well, now what's the best university that my kid can go to major in STEM? I said, you can't. I said, there is no major in STEM. I said, do you know what the acronym means? And so I think we kind of blew it. And I was part of that. So I'm, I'm trying to rectify that. So yeah. So what's the alternative then? So, so what is the new uh, proposal, I guess, or direction? Well, I, I don't know if there's a label or a name, but I, I want to impress upon students that first of all, when I was going to college, Half the disciplines and careers that are available now didn't really exist when I was in college. So you need to recognize that I believe that's going to still be true. That, and this is part of the reasons I wrote Manners, is that I'm looking at foundational skills. And I said, you know, it's important to, to be prepared because we don't know what the future is going to hold in terms of disciplines. And so to get tracked into one thing really deeply in particular might uh, preclude your ability to consider other possibilities that get invented, including things that you might invent as well. So I don't know how I would, how I would label that, but I've gravitated away from uh, to some degree from promoting STEM as a thing to do at the expense of other things because it's a range of skills that you need. So, for example, I'm not a big fan of so-called hard and soft skills. And some people have said, oh, well, I think your book is really great because you're teaching students, you know, the soft skills they will need. And I thought, well, I, I don't particularly like that labeling because it infers that it's not as important or good or valuable, maybe, or it means certain things. I just say it's skills. You know, you're skilled in certain areas. You're skilled in 
your ability to do calculations, to grasp concepts, you're skilled in your ability to have rapport with people, you're skilled in listening, you're skilled in body language positioning, you're skilled in a lot of different things. I said, I'm sure that people like Bill Gates and Oprah Winfrey and Jeff Bezos have a range of skills that, that help them get to where they are, not just so-called hard and soft skills or technical skills and non-technical skills. So um, I'm, I'm advocating for, particularly for students, high school students and college students, to really think about their foundational training that's going to enable them to grasp and tackle things in the future as it comes about, because it's a future that we don't necessarily know uh, what's going to be in front of us. That's yeah, you know, and you bring up a really good point because, you know, as a hiring, as a hiring manager in, in a position right now for a sales company, um, you know, one of the things I look for when I'm looking at potential candidates isn't necessarily uh, their understanding of our products or uh, it's a medical company, so anatomy um, or, or any surgical techniques. Really, when I'm looking to hire someone, I'm looking for someone that, uh, A, is engaging to speak with, um, B, has critical skink, critical thinking skills, um, has social awareness, and is just able to hold a conversation, engage, um, learn new tasks. And those aren't things that necessarily are taught per se in school. Now, they are traits that are acquired. Uh, in school and through different, through different interactions with other people and experiences. And I think you had a great story about your first interview with NASA and almost thinking, you know, do I even have the training and the skills to do this job? Do you want to elaborate on, on that interview? Yes. Um, and I, I'm totally with you on what you're saying. I later on, I talk about a story of meeting a young man where I felt like I could hire him in a minute. Turned out he was only 11 years old because my <laughs> point is I could teach you the technical skills you need to do the job for the most part. Now, there's some technical skills you're going to need a lot of extensive training to do and so on and so forth. But the reality is that if you don't have the kinds of things that you just talked about, Ryan, it's going to be very difficult to teach someone the technical skills in order to execute on the job. The, the, when I first started, uh, my first interview at NASA was at our Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. And uh, like I said, uh, they pulled my uh, application. I was a presidential intern. Agencies had an opportunity to interview interns. Uh, they called me and I, uh, my father convinced me I should do the interview. He said, practicing interview is always a good thing. He was right. And, um, and so what, what, I was astounded that when we were talking, you know, it was a good conversation. I didn't, they didn't throw me any, you know, curveball questions that, you know, so how would you calculate the change of velocity of a spacecraft? I mean, I didn't get that because that wasn't the point. Uh, but I was still nervous about whether or not I could be a NASA person. You know, to me, this is just an agency full of geniuses and you know, straight A students out of MIT and the Ivies and what have you. And um, and I, so I was surprised when they called me the next day and offered me a position. And at the time, I was still trying to go work in the international world. That's what I had, my interest had evolved to. And uh, but they kept calling until finally, my with a little help from my father, he convinced me to to take it. And um, 
And later talking to the personnel man who uh, was in the room, what he told me was really instructive. He told me what it was that the interviewers liked about me, and it had nothing to do with my technical knowledge at all. It mostly had to do with the things that you just talked about. I listened well. I asked good questions. I was sufficiently self-deprecating that I didn't show up as, you know, I am the great, wonderful, future NASA person. You should be privileged to hire me kind of thing. And I've seen people like that. I've interviewed hundreds of people. And I, I get these kids that walk in that, you know, think that, you know, they, they, I should be grateful to have them in NASA because they're so smart. And they are smart. And they probably could do a great job. But I wouldn't hire them. I, you know, I'd, I'd be afraid that they'd be poor team members. So, um, and it was subtle things, you know, I dressed properly. I just assumed that was normal. I mean, I, I, I had on the right kind of suit and tie and the shoes were polished. My hair was cut, but you know, the guy said, you know, there was another candidate who walked in and wearing sunglasses and he had a gold chain and no tie and a bit of a swagger. And, and I thought, who does that in an interview? I thought, I thought that was basic stuff. So, you know, so I, that gave me a clue, Ryan, that part of the key to having a fulfilling career is, is paying attention to those things. But don't get me wrong. I am not an advocate for not paying attention to your technical abilities to do the job. I mean, you know, my brother who collaborated with me on this book is an airline pilot. Trust me, you have to know how to fly the plane or they will never hire you to fly the plane. However, if you don't have good manner skills, they may pass you over for somebody who does, because what my brother tells me that most of the time he's in the cockpit, things that he has to spend time on managing are the interactions with his crew, the, the people in the back and the people in the front. And he tells me stories that are amazing that actually happens. Yet every single one of them can do their job, right? You know, the pilot, the co-pilot, he's a captain. They, they know how to fly the plane. But if you want to have a safe flight, a success flight, particularly when things go wrong, you have to really be cohesive. You have to know how to dance with each other in a way that really honors your number one goal, and that is the safety of the passengers. So, you know, you got to, you know, you got to know how to fly the spacecraft. You got to know how to fly the plane. You know, you make medical devices. They better work. You know, they can't not work. People have to know how to make them right. Um, but at the end of the day, for a lay person like me, how are you going to tell me that your device is something that I need? You know, I have medical devices inside my body. Thank God for the people who made them and did them. I'm grateful for what they did. Um, so it's important to have that right. Um, but there's more to it. And I like to tell students, being smart is not good enough. If you want to work for a place like NASA and be successful, being smart is not good enough. And that's what I tell them. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because if you think about really any career, and, and you know, I can't think of one off the top of my head that is not collaborative in some way. You're, you're yeah. going to have some sort of team and you're going to have, whether you're working with one person or a group of people or reporting to someone or have people that report to you. And what's, what's great about the way you articulated this book is that it seems as though these manners and these social cues, they're, they're a way 
that kind of show someone else that you have humility and that yes. you have self-respect. And those yeah. are both key things when you're working collaboratively with others. And I, I love the fact that, you know, you have to have integrity and respect and mindfulness and compassion as, as you articulated so well, because those are all, those are all attributes that help in teamwork. Um, yes. So, you know, you, you do talk as well about building a team and, and as a leader at NASA, um, what kind of, what kind of values did you really look for as you were building a team? Well, the first thing that I looked for was a sense of authenticity and a sense of integrity. And I, I try, I don't know how successful I was. Hopefully the readers will, will tell me, but you know, so it's easy to say be authentic, but what do you really mean by that? So I tried to give an example of somebody who may sound like they have good manners, but you have this sense that, you know, they're putting on an act called, I have good manners act, right? So like you might interview somebody and you're like, well, he says the right things and he sounded good and he was dressed right, but I don't know, there's just something about him. And and I I likened it to, the question of, okay, so when, when the recording is over, you know, and I just go hang out with Ryan, is he the same person that I just talked to? Or was he, you know, doing a number to impress me or vice versa? Like if you were to see me and like, I don't recognize that man at all. I thought he was the manners guy, right? So it's that kind of distinction. So I, first of all, look for people that I feel are, are, are authentic. Now, sometimes somebody's authenticity, right, is not something that I particularly like, but I realize that it's really kind of who they are because included in their authenticity, and this is the second thing I look for, is the degree to which somebody is supportable in improving this. And I actually learned this from a cousin of mine who was going to dental school. And I was a little kid and I'll never forget. He was digging in the mouth of somebody. This was at, at Tufts University. And he was in this big room where all these dental students were practicing on these guinea pigs. And I'll never forget the, the instructor, the dental school instructor came over and my cousin asked him to look at his work. And the instructors said, well, that's satisfactory. And my cousin said, well, doctor, how can I make it better? What, what, what can I do to make this better? And I never forgot that. So that almost became my mantra. If I did something and someone said, Don, that's a great job, my usual response is, well, how could I have made it better? So I'm looking for somebody who is willing to be supportable to say, you know, how can I, how can I do this right? Or what, what do you see or what can I suggest? I may not know the answer. I may say, well, I suggest you go talk to a professional expert if it's a significant problem. But most people don't do that. I had a colleague once who really wasn't a very good listener, and it was a real problem. And I tried to help that person, but never once did he actually say to me, um, you know, Donald, I really would like to, I, I heard the feedback about listening, and I, I'm not exactly sure how to do it. You know, can you help me out here? What do you recommend? But that's the first step is you have to be you have to be supportable. One of the most incredible quest things you could ask anybody is, 
I, I need support on this. I need help. I don't know what to do. And I learned to do that. Even as an associate administrator, when I didn't know what I was doing, I would go ask for help. As a matter of fact, the very first question I asked when I got to NASA headquarters, here I am, this big man on campus. I went to an old friend of mine and I said, Dwayne, how do I stay out of the doghouse in this job? And that was my way of asking, what are the what are the minefields? What are the traps? What do I need to, and he said, here's who you need to talk to. Here's who you need to watch out for. Worry about this. Don't do this. Don't do that. And so on and so forth. That's how I started my career. First day on the job, I went to see Dwayne. How do I stay out of the doghouse? So I look for people who want to be supported. Uh, Authenticity, want support, and a sense of, of that they want to give more than they want to take. Um, that are they're giving. Yeah. Sure. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. I was just going to ask, no. are, th- are there certain um, tells, I guess, when you're interviewing someone that, that do show more authenticity? Or if you are interviewing, how do you show that authenticity? For me, usually it's the body language. Um, I've, I've learned to uh, train myself a little bit about body language to be observer of my own language. Um, usually the tell about authenticity is people are relaxed. Um, they're not fidgeting a lot. Um, and, I, and I appreciate that it can, you can be nervous, right? You, if you're new to the game and you're coming in and you really want a job. I mean, I was nervous when I went to interview at NASA headquarters, but I was aware that I was nervous so I can deploy my countermeasures. Most, many people aren't really aware that they're nervous. They just are nervous. And so they haven't worked on their countermeasures. So I, I learn tricks like when I know that I'm nervous, I will usually take my right hand and put it over my left. You know, I would just connect with myself. Mm-hmm. And that's my signal to just take a deep breath and just be present with the person I'm speaking to. So I look for that um, because sometimes the, the, the body language reveals that there is something hidden or there is something concerning or, uh, and it can work both ways. Sometimes I've drawn people out and it turns out that they have gifts that are incredible, but, you know, they grew up feeling like it wasn't okay to like put that on display. And I tell a lot of students, hey, show me your genius. I want your genius. I'm inspired by your genius. That's what turns me on. I want to know what you're great at and what you're doing. And please don't be afraid to, to show that to me. And so, um, so sometimes I have to draw that out. So for me, it's body language, and it's something you just have to study. I read a lot of books on it, and I pay attention to it, and I observe and ask questions when it's appropriate. Yeah, that self-awareness is, is key. And I think that, that people do need to be self-aware, especially of, of their emotions and of their reactions to those emotions. And, and I have a theory, and I don't know necessarily that it's a theory as much as just a, a belief that, um, you need to put yourself in uncomfortable situations on a daily basis. And the more, the more you expose yourself to being uncomfortable, 
the more, A, you're aware of how you react. So you start feeling yourself getting uh, your heart rate getting raised. You can feel yourself getting hot and sweaty. And then you can deploy some of those triggers. Like you said, put your right arm over your left or take a deep breath. For me, it's taking a deep breath through the nose to realize, okay, I need to calm myself down. I need to keep going. But it's through that repetition of doing something difficult that not only makes you aware of what's going on, but helps you understand the best way to kind of overcome that feeling. And you, the, you describe this so well in the book. And I love the title of this chapter because you labeled it pink suits and yeah. it's being uncomfortable. And, yeah. uh, and, and I love the fact that you addressed this because I, I really feel this is one of the most important things for anyone to do but especially young men and people just starting new careers because, you know, like I said, I think putting yourself in these situations to be exposed to learning and and new experiences is key. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Uh, So pink suits is a metaphor, um, and I talk about how, you know, I don't necessarily – fancy wearing a pink suit, although at, at my age at this day, you know, I, I, I probably will. And it doesn't really matter. Nobody would think twice about it. But if you can just imagine somebody said, Ryan, I just I want you to put on this pink suit and I want you to wear it for the day. And you're like, oh, wow, that could be a little challenging and difficult. And, you know, people are going to look at me and I'm going to feel, you know, whatever it is that you react to. And the point is that metaphorically, we're talking about trying on something that is uh, unusual or different to examine it in a way of, of helping you grow. And I, I, I look at it from a, from a manners perspective, but it really does start with awareness. So I think it was in this chapter where I, I suggest a very, very simple exercise. I said, look, when you get up in the morning after your shower, when you put on your underwear, I want you to start with your left foot first and then your right foot. Now, I I, I think, I don't know if most people start with their right foot or their left foot, but whatever you normally start with, do the opposite. Now, two things are probably going to be true. One is people are going to realize, God, I never thought about how I put my underwear on. And I would imagine they wouldn't because however old they are, they've probably done it thousands of times. So that's that's awareness point number one is how do you put on your underwear, right? I, I don't think anybody jumps up with both feet and then tries to put their underwear on with both feet going at the same time. But whatever foot you start with, do the opposite. Now, here's where the second thing ha- comes in is that you find out that it could be challenging. I mean, I almost fell over the first time I did this and, you know, my foot gets stuck because – of, I mean, I'm not sure what I believe about muscle muscle memory, but, you know, you can imagine that you can be a little awkward. And so it's an exercise in awareness. It's an exercise in awareness about what is happening. And a pink suit, when you realize you're in a pink suit moment, it's an exercise in awareness. Another example that I offer to people is... When, the, when you are in a conversation with a group of people, just ask yourself to slow down how much you contribute to the conversation and be an observer of the conversation and just watch the dynamics of that. It's one of my favorite pastimes, right? 
particularly when, you know, I'm with my wife and her friends and my other friends. I mean, you know, I talk a lot, but they talk a lot more than I do a lot of times, depending on who they are. So I just observe, you know, the flow of the communications just as an observer to see, you know, what's happening. And so you learn a lot that way through awareness. So, so as you sharpen your skills and awareness, now when someone says to you, um, Ryan, I don't know if you're aware, but when you talk and you get excited, you tend to put your hand around your neck and massage your neck. And it doesn't mean anything, but I just don't know if you're aware of that. Now, does that matter whether you do that or not? And I'm just picking on you just, just for sake of example, because you don't, you're not doing that. I know people can't see you, but you're not doing that. But the point is that if I am your on your team, and I talk about what I mean by a team, and you've invited me to support you and how you show up in the world, which fundamentally, I say that's what manners are, is how you are actually showing up in the world. And I'm reacting to you uh, of about the kinds of things that you do with your body that I think you might want to be aware of that. It might seem inconsequential, but to some people external to you, it might be a tell to them that you're a nervous person and they might be concerned about that. So I'm inviting you to see if that's something that you want to correct. Most people aren't even aware of what they do. They're not aware of their tics. You know, I learned that uh, the people who worked with former President Clinton had to train him on how to gesticulate within the box. I'd never heard of this, but apparently he used to put his hands way outside of his body and he'd make his points like this. And they said, no, boss, you have to imagine this imaginary box around your torso and keep your hands there. And, he, and so he had to practice that. So apparently people who study this say that's more effective and a sign of strength and power and all that. So Pink Suits is uh, my way of, in fact, my publishing company is called Pink Suit Press. That's what I named it in honor of Pink Suits because I think it's the essence of really growing in this domain. And sometimes manners and manners behaviors for a lot of people really is a pink suit thing. And people don't realize when they're in that moment. And I'm trying to shine the light on and say, realize you're in a pink suit moment and how are you going to deal with it? And I share some stories about, you know, job opportunities and changes that were clearly pink suit moments. And I knew at the time that how I acted and reacted was going to be important. And, and that's going to happen to a lot of people. And you have to be prepared. Yeah, you know, you said something very interesting to me there, and there's there's this dichotomy that I'd love for you to expand on between kind of politeness um, and honesty. And, and the reason I bring that up is, you know, your example was great. You know, you're being honest with me about something I may be doing when I'm nervous. And I, I don't know, have, are you familiar with, like, Ray Dalio? He's a hedge fund manager. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, so... One of, one of the things that he does or that he believes in with his company is this, and this may not be the term for it, but it's like extreme honesty. Yeah. And he believes that anything that is being thought should be said. Um, now, that almost seems contradictory to what you're saying, right? Because manners, politeness, you, you don't want to maybe offend people. But then going back to what you're describing is this authenticity and this honesty saying, no, 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 
I, I care about you and I want you to grow. So I need to be honest with you. And yes. If I'm just being polite, then I'm not really helping you. All I'm doing is appeasing you and making you feel good about yourself. Um, I think that's probably the heart of understanding this work. And, and I love the question, Ryan, and I, I really appreciate it. True story. I take a trip. I write about this in the book. I take a trip to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and when I check into the hotel, it was actually right at the airport. I check into the hotel. The gentleman who greeted me, man about 30 years old, was just, he was just so nice. And, well, how are you, sir? It's great to see you. Welcome to the Marriott. And he went on and on like this. And, and, and I, he, Carried my polite, gentlemanly, everything was just pitch perfect. When I got to the check-in counter and um, I gave him his gratuity and he left, here was the thought bubble that was going in my head. Thought bubble number one is he clearly was trained on how to engage people like me. And number two, thought bubble number two is I bet this is not how he acts when he's at home hanging out with his friends and his buddies. That's the distinction. And so although I appreciated and respected his politeness, I didn't feel a lot of authenticity. And, and you know, there's, I, I think the distinction is how you are being honest, not the fact that you are being honest, right? I think there's a right way and a wrong way to be authentic and honest with people without being offensive. For one thing, I think it's important to be invited into the space of being honest with somebody. Just because, you know, you know, you and I have now talked for a while and, you know, we're good and everything, doesn't give me the authority to say, Hey, Ryan, I just want to tell you, you know, about that haircut you got going on, man. I mean, I mean, you didn't ask me about your hair. You didn't ask me. So, well, what do you think about my appearance? And you know, I'm trying to improve. I mean, that's, that's what I mean. So, I mean, I may have that thought in my head, like, brother, you got to do something about the haircut. Now, for the listeners who can't see Ryan, he's very <laughs> handsome and he's got a great haircut. So, I'm just using him as an example in here. It could work both ways, right? So, you have, you have to give permission because if you don't, if people don't give you permission, then I don't know that there's a lot of growing and learning that's going to happen. Um, so when I talk about constructing a team of people around you, it's really inviting people to say, look, um, I want you to show me the video and the, and the photo of me. Because you know you get out of the shower and you look at yourself every day and you don't think anything of it. But the first time you see a video of yourself naked out of the shower, you're like, ah, what is that? You know, it's like, oh, or a photograph of yourself or you listen to yourself talk because it's an external source, right? So that's what I'm talking about. So the distinction for me is, you know, I think there's a way in which you can be authentic and honest while being respectful of the space that you're in. And in some cases, you know, you have to work on that. Um, I mean, I'm a man. I appreciate looking at beautiful women. But I can tell you, I don't go around commenting about, you know, women's looks and all that kind of stuff because I think it's disrespectful. Now, if somebody asks me their opinion, 
First of all, pro tip number one to all the guys out there, if a woman asks you what they think about their appearance, be careful. <laughs> there's usually there's usually not a right answer to that other than looks great. Don't worry about it. But that's that's for a different book. Yeah. I, I hope I made myself clear about those distinctions. So, you know, I don't I don't mind politeness and etiquette. I think there's a place for that. And I think it's important to understand that. But I don't like it when it's phony. I, I don't I don't like it when it's phony. Uh, yeah, I, well, I think people see through that. Um, and, and I think, you know, NASA, similar to, to my field of business as well in terms of medical device sales, I think it's important to be authentic for a lot of reasons, uh, as well as being honest. And I would imagine, I don't want to speak directly to NASA, I'll let you do that. But if I'm in the operating room uh, with a surgeon, and, you know, he or she looks back at me and says, well, how does this look, right? They finished everything up and, and they're looking for some honest feedback on, on how whatever they just did uh, looks in comparison to maybe their peers of the industry. You know, is it polite for me to look at them and say, it looks great, doc? Yeah, that, that is polite. Although it's not beneficial to me, it's not beneficial to the surgeon, it's not beneficial to the patient for me to be polite in that situation. It's right. more beneficial for me to be honest. And, and I may say, that looks good. However, we'll, let's think about doing this. Or, yeah. you know, did you consider this part? And, yes. you know, that's more authentic. And, and while the, while that surgeon may think that I'm polite, they are going to look for someone else to be a resource yes. to them. And I think that's important. And, and, and NASA, I would imagine, because it is a life and death situation in so many ways when you're dealing with rockets or uh, space journeys, any, anything, these, these polite back and forths aren't going to be productive if, if that's all they are, is polite. Yeah. Yes, we learned that in the aviation field. Several years ago, it was the case that in most uh, cockpits, flight crews, the captain was the guy. What he said, and it was mostly he, let's be honest, that was it. Nobody questioned him. Usually they had three, sometimes four, depending on the plane in the cockpit. Now it's just two. Due to NASA research, um, it was called human factors research work. And a lot of it was done at the NASA center where I work. What we learned was that was not helpful from a safety perspective because sometimes the first officer could see something that the captain didn't see. But if the first officer was trained to always nod his head and it usually wasn't he and say, yes, sir. Okay, fine. Even though he realized they were headed for disaster that's not helpful. As a passenger, I want the collective best minds of everybody to get me on the ground safely, right? Because um, there could be any number of reasons. Now, um, I likened it to the metaphor of the bow and arrow. This is applicable, I think, for groups where there's older generations and younger generations people. The string part of the bow and arrow are the older people. They're trying to keep things together, hold things tight. They have their ways. They have their experiences and all that. The younger people are the outer part of the bow. They just want to flail away and try this and try that. And, hey, let's just go find aliens. Let's do that. And then, you know, they've realized that they can't just do that. But when you put them together, 
when you tie the string to the bow, right, that's the only way the arrow is going to launch because they're working in concert together. So you need both the wisdom and the experience of the older generation with the fresh and the creative and the willingness to try new things of the younger generation working in harmony together. And you can use this metaphor in a number of ways, but your example in the operating room is perfect that the surgeon may have been done this particular procedure 10,000 times and you come in there and you see something and you say, you know, doc, the way I see it, I think as we modify this particular device, it would be better if it was applied in a certain way. It's incumbent on that staff to listen and to take all the factors uh, into effect in order for the best outcome, which is me as the patient living. So I'm with you totally on that. And that's what I'm trying to accomplish with manners and awareness and how we actually show up in the world and how we get support from one another, how we give it. Um, it's not just about putting on a smiley face. I mean, look, back in the old days of, you know, of Jim Crow and, and lynching, I mean, I can tell you stories about the people who went and chased black people for the audience that doesn't know I'm an African-American male who you know, who were just as polite as they could be as they were hanging some poor guy who they didn't like. So, <laughs> I mean, that's an awful example to show, but I've read stories where they were very polite and they let the guy say his prayers and they called him sir and everything. And then the next minute they're stringing him up. So it's not just about that stuff. Um, there's a place for it, but it needs to be you know, there's a moral to, dimension to, for me, there's a moral dimension to manners. Uh, and, I, and I'm willing to take a stand that there is a right or wrong. There is a, a, a right way and a wrong way to engage people. And we just need to learn how to do it in a mutually beneficial way. That's, yeah, that's really great insight. And, uh, and you know, you bring up a, a really Good point. And, and one of the things you talk about in your book is you talk about decisions versus consequences. And, and look, this is a fantastic book. And, uh, and I, I would suggest for everybody to pick it up and read it, especially young men and, and women who are looking to start their careers. Yeah. Um, and, and get into the, any industry, just get yeah. into the workforce. But you bring up something, and I don't remember if specifically you wrote it in your book. Maybe it was the foreword. Maybe it was maybe it was your website. And I want to tread lightly here, just because of just because of the the dynamic we're in as a country in the past year. Um, but you talk about George Floyd, and I'm really interested to to get your perspective on what's going on with the world, and, and not necessarily why you think uh, we've got issues with race relations. But your perspective of manners, I think, is an interesting story to relate to young black men who, look, have, have for a long time been treated poorly by authority. And yeah. how do you think your message resonates um, with that population? Well, the... The truth is I don't know because I don't have feedback from a wide audience in that area. So far, um, 
the book has gotten great traction. I've been, I'm invited to speak at different um, uh, organizations. I'm a part of the Organization of Black Aerospace Professionals, and I'm presenting uh, at the end of this week together with my brother to over 15,000 students across the country. Most of them are going to be Black students, Brown, Latinos. So I hope that it resonates with them. But um, I appreciate the question because this is something that could be misunderstood. But let me try to answer it this way, and maybe people will get it. So uh, I'm a parent, and I have two children. I'm fair complexion black man. My father was darker than me. My, 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 my mother was fairly fair, although she was African-American and, you know, she's on the cover of the book with me and my brother. Um, I'm married to a Caucasian woman. And so both my children are so fair that they could be um, uh, mistaken for being Caucasian. My daughter is quite um, aware of her ethnicity and she's very sensitive about issues of Black Lives Matter and social justice and things like that and is extremely smart about these issues and very, very aware she lives in New York. And um, one day she, and she's pretty fair, but one day she told me that she was out with her boyfriend um, and they were driving late and, um, and they were going to get, they were getting pulled over for some reason. And before she went into her story, I said to her in complete honesty and seriousness, I said, Shauna, did you use your white girl voice? Did you use your white girl voice? And she said, yes, dad, I did. No worries. Now my daughter is a very accomplished actor in New York. So she could use any voice she wants. But what I didn't want her to do was to use her angry black girl voice in defiance of some white cop who was could have had an attitude because as a father, my number one goal is to keep my children alive. I want my children to be alive. We will deal with the social injustice and oppression in a different context when the dynamics of power are not in her favor. And at that moment, they weren't in her favor. He has a gun, she doesn't. So I'm telling you, and I have no qualms about saying this to anybody, when you are in a dynamic of power where you are the one who has the most to lose, including your life, by any means necessary, you keep your life because you can't fight oppression when you're in the grave. So I would say, and I do say to young men of color that you have to pick your battles, you have to pick how you pick your battles and those are manners issues. I tell a story at the beginning of the book where a man had accosted my mother and I was seething mad that somebody had stolen my mother's purse and knocked her down. She was 80 some years old. She could have died. She could have been badly hurt. And my mother didn't, couldn't recognize him, didn't know what he looked like. She believed she, she was pretty sure he was a young black man, but he ran off before she could even get a look at his face. So the next day I go down to the dollar store where this happened. I'm, I'm piping mad and I am looking for somebody to beat up. 
until I came to my senses and I realized, number one, I had no idea who I was looking for. And number two, I ran the risk, like many people do, of accosting a young black man who had nothing to do with my mother. And not only that, but taking vigilante justice into my own hands, which was something abhorrent to my mother. I never told her that I did that, actually. But that's an example where I myself was potentially um, doing something bad to somebody. Why? The only data that I had about this, he was black. The only data I had about him, he was black, right? So I had to deploy every manner skills that I had to pull myself back from potentially doing something that I would have really regretted. What a great... uh... I think that's a great, great story and a great place to, to kind of end this. Um, the book is Manners. Manners will take you where brains and money won't. And uh, I love it. It's a fantastic book. The writing is phenomenal. Um, the message is even better. So, uh, Donald, thank you so much for, for joining us. How can people find you in the book? Thank you. Um, best way they can go to my website uh, where there's links to how to actually email me, and I welcome that. Uh, the URL is simply my full name, donaldgregoryjames.com, donaldgregoryjames.com. And uh, in the contact session, there's a way of writing me, but um, I use uh, the title of the book as part of my email, mannerswilltakeyou at gmail.com, mannerswilltakeyou at gmail.com. And I answer all emails and I, I welcome feedback and I, I welcome this discussion. I'm, um, I hope to instigate a manners renaissance, Ryan, and um, to help uh, have our world be a, a better place for my children and their children to, to live in. So um, that's my purpose. I think that would be great. One last question for you. I think you're the only person in the world that has the expertise to answer this question. If aliens show up, what is the polite way to greet them? <laughs> um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, for, for the record, as a NASA person, I do believe there are aliens in the universe. Just I want to set the record straight. They may not look like how you and I think they look like. Um, but, you know, we have a history of seeing people that aren't like us, that we call the other, and become instantly suspicious of them. And um, my, my first reaction is uh, to hand them a copy of the book and say, I don't know if you can read this, but this is what I'm about. What can I learn from you? Um, because in many ways, we're all aliens, Ryan, that, um, you know, we don't know each other. So we create stories and narratives about the other right? Um, People who see me initially are going to construct something about me. People see you might construct something about you until, you know, they get to know you and feel connected to you and connect to your heart. And, and that's what I hope we can do. And so I hope when the aliens come, actually, there is a theory that the aliens are already here, but you have to call me back and I'll explain how that works. There is a NASA theory that we're already here, um, believe it or not. It's not too far-fetched, but um, yeah, so I hope they have good manners. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Donald James, 
Thank you so much. This was awesome. I really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. I appreciate it. And let's stay in touch, all right? 